Black hole sun, won't you come? Won't you come? Yep, it's about that time again. Time for another exciting edition of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And this is Sean, your host sometimes known as Janitor Sean. Thank you so much, Phil, and one-on-one basketball for that uh, nickname. But anyway, here we are again, episode number 11. We're going to talk about Scramble later on. And I do have some updates that I should mention here. Something really exciting, actually, that I just found out. Um, I didn't get all the details on this, but it is some really exciting news. Lately, we've been talking about a lot of games by Bob DiCrescenzo, and this episode is going to be no different. We're still going to be talking about another Bob DiCrescenzo game, because there are a lot of them. He just announced on Atari Age that he's working on a project with Coleco, I believe, whoever owns the Coleco name, uh, developing at least one game title for him. I saw a screenshot, and it looks exactly like what you would expect from Bob. So he's been really busy with that lately, and I offer a big congratulations to Bob on the new gig. And other exciting news, uh, there is now another way to get Ed Ladin controllers. Ed Ladin controllers will now be available in the Atari Age store. They are currently there right now. I've sung the praises of Ed Ladin controllers on this podcast and on Pie Factory podcast, and basically anytime I can get a chance... And I was just really glad to see that you can get those on Atari Age now, because what's so cool about that? Well, for one thing, over at Atari Age, if you send in common Atari 2600, 5200, and 7800 titles that Albert can convert into homebrew cartridges, you get a discount. You get a gift certificate to the Atari Age store. And uh, I don't it's something like, I think, like 50 cents per um, 2600 or 7800 cart. Uh, I think a dollar for every 5,200 cart and shipping is also included. So basically you get that plus whatever your shipping charge was. And uh, I've taken advantage of that many times and gotten a few bucks knocked off my purchases. So if you have like a billion combat carts just laying around, you know what to do with them now. What really is a little bit heartbreaking is that, um, and this is true whether or not you get them from uh, Atari Age or edladen.com, is that if you're overseas, the shipping costs can be kind of preventative, if you will, because these controllers are some pretty heavy-duty stuff. Like, they are tabletop controllers that are wide enough to fit on your lap. In fact, that's exactly what they were designed for. I mean, there's more than just those big controllers. There's the Seagull 78, one of which I gave away earlier on in this podcast's existence, which you can plug your Sega Genesis controller into, and it gives you two independent firing buttons for use with the Atari 7800. Very cool device. That, I can imagine the shipping isn't all that bad. Because <laughs> it's just a cable with a little tiny box on it, basically. Oh, and something else I should talk about. Something that I had mentioned, I believe I mentioned in, in this podcast, it was a feedback from a listener. I think it was uh, Keith Sheehan who mentioned the Easy 78 And I was like, what? And that is now up for sale. The Easy 78 input-output board, um, I'm looking at the info on Atari Age. It looks like it's basically a printed circuit board, and it costs $15. It's basically something that will allow you to build a joystick from. 
It looks like it has a couple of uh, resist. I think they're resistors. I, I I don't know. I'm not that good at identifying electronic parts. I know how to solder. That's pretty much it. But it's a diagrammed circuit board that tells you how to wire things so you can build your own joystick from scratch if you have the other parts. And um, it's a pretty promising thing. So if you'd love to use an Ed Ladin controller, but unfortunately, like you live like overseas. Like you live in Europe or Asia or Australia or Africa and the shipping is just way too expensive for you. At least you can do that. Maybe you can get the Ed Leiden Easy 78 and build your own controller that way. So that might be something, but um, that's really exciting, especially because there are ColecoVision controllers coming out from Ed Ladin. And um, I don't have a ColecoVision, but I really do think I'm going to want to get the Project Prometheus that's going to be coming out in the next year or two. That might be something interesting. And when that comes out, you better believe I'm going to be looking into an Ed Ladin controller. Uh, I Rumor has it he's going to be doing 5200 controllers. And I had an Atari 5200 for about two years, and I just didn't like it. The games were fine, I guess, but I didn't like that the console was so freaking huge. I understand. They, it's built-in controller storage, really. But I don't need that. I don't need that. I just want something nice and compact. I might have mentioned this before, but my favorite Atari 2600 console of all the ones that were made, besides the 7800, of course, my favorite Atari 2600 console was the Junior because it was just so tiny and so easy to store. When I was done with it, I could just put it in a drawer. Bam, done. Didn't take up much room. 5200, you can't do something like that. But another big reason I didn't like the 5200 was the controllers. I don't like those controllers. I couldn't, I, no amount of Pac-Man playing on those things could improve my score because I always ended up overcompensating for recentering in that game and it just didn't work for me. I did get a Wicko Command controller for that, which everybody said was a vast improvement. I didn't even like that thing. I mean, it, it was okay. It did, a, it did improve things a little bit, but it was still a pain to set up. I, I, I just didn't like it. I, I really didn't. So I traded it for an Atari 600 XL, which I've hardly ever used. I really got to look into that thing again. I have a, I have one of those multi carts for it too. So I really should spend more time with it and possibly less time babbling on my podcast. But, and I did get an interesting feedback that I do want to address um, who the person who left it for me probably won't be hearing this because he basically, he told me in no uncertain terms that I lost him as a listener. And that's, you know, it's a shame, but um, it was apparently what I said at the end of episode three. And I'm not going to restate what I said because it was a little bit political and I, I, to, honest to God, I do not like talking about politics. I hate it. But basically my overall message in the end was, Hey, you know, let's, Every one of us, let's be good to each other. Let's support each other. Let's make sure that, you know, we're always having, say, a better four years than the previous four years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all come from different backgrounds, different whatevers, and we have this Atari stuff in common. And regardless, we should all be there to support each other, help each other out, and make sure that we're all doing the best that we possibly can. So uh, I didn't mean it to come across as like partisan or anti-partisan <laughs> or whatever else have you. But uh, he, uh, he told the story about what happened to him at work and something that I said kind of like ticked him off about that because of what happened to him. And quite frankly, 
I totally agree with him that what happened to him where he worked was not fair. It was deplorable, actually, as far as I'm concerned. And basically, I'm on his side, to be quite honest. But hey, that was pretty much all I was ever going to say that had anything remotely political. Because again, I just, I just hate that stuff. What do I like? I like games. I like games. I like music. And this, well, this isn't a music podcast, so I shouldn't really talk about music that much, really. And um, I like 7,800 homebrews very much. Well, and 2,600 homebrews for that matter. I have a lot of those too, and I love them. But hey, since this is a 7,800 homebrew podcast, why don't we start talking about that? Hmm? The story of Konami starts with a guy named Kagemasa Kozuki, who started a jukebox rental and repair business in Osaka, Japan on March 21st, 1969. If you know anything about arcade game makers, this is a pretty common story. And four years later, almost to the day, that jukebox business became Konami Industry Company Limited when the company decided to expand into the growing market of arcade games. The first arcade video game that Konami put out was called Block Game, and it was a paddle and ball kind of a game released in 1978. So you can see they worked for a while before they actually released something. And then the following year, Konami started exporting games to the United States that companies like Sega and Stern Seberg would distribute. In October 1982, Konami got into the PC game market, and the following month, Konami opened Konami of America, Inc. in Torrance, California. In November of 1983, Konami started doing games for the MSX computer and became one of the biggest supporters of the MSX and the MSX2 computers over the next seven or so years. In 1984, Konami of America moved to 900 Deerfield Parkway in Buffalo Grove, Illinois, in one of those depressing, dreary, boring industrial parks. And uh, since then, they have relocated to Redwood City, California, and the Buffalo Grove location kept on going, focusing on arcade games until it was shut down in 2003 when arcade games were no longer profitable, or at least not for Konami they weren't. Right now, Konami of America is in El Segundo, California, and Konami's old Buffalo Grove location is a company called Crosscom National. Uh, I have no idea what Crosscom National does, but I did find their website, and even after reading their website, I still have no idea what they do because the website is loaded with all kinds of those meaningless buzzwords that you can find in any mission statement generator. It's all about triangulating and our mission is this and robust synergies and all this. It's like, okay, great. Tell me what you do. But anyway, I have a feeling they don't do video games. But let's go back to a company that does do video games, and that's Konami, of course. In May of 1984, Konami established a British presence with Konami Limited, now called Konami Digital Entertainment BV, located in Windsor, United Kingdom. In October of that year, Konami went public on the Osaka Securities Exchange, and in December, Konami GmbH, which, by the way, that's German for LLC, Konami GmbH was established in Frankfurt, Germany, and it's now known as Konami Digital Entertainment GmbH. And then let's look at April 1985. That was a pretty important month in the history of Konami, because that is when Konami began marketing and selling games for the family computer, a.k.a. Famicom, 
which of course would be released six months later in North America and known to most of the English-speaking world as Nintendo Entertainment System. Konami would end up releasing over a hundred games for the NES over the next nine years, and interestingly, not a single one of them was a port of Scramble. There were some licensing agreements they had with Nintendo, though. In fact, uh, Nintendo's licensing agreements with third party was pretty strict. It mandated that third party companies were only allowed to produce five titles for the NES per year in North America. So what happened to get around that restriction, Konami formed a subsidiary called Ultra Games, which would release many of Konami's titles in North America. So that way, now Konami technically is two different companies. Each one could release five different games a year, meaning 10 games per year for Konami, period. And Konami found there was a similar licensing issue in Europe. So in Europe, they started a subsidiary called Palcom Software. Now, Ultra Games, in 1992, they discontinued that because... Konami's support moved over to the Super NES, and Nintendo's licensing for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System was less stringent, so Ultra Games as a kind of secret side company was no longer necessary. And thanks to the games that Konami produced for the Nintendo Entertainment System, Konami's earnings grew from $10 million in 1987 to three. million hundred million in 1991. That's 3000% of what they made at the beginning of that five-year period. I'm not going to get into a heck of a lot of detail about what happened to Konami over the next two decades, other than there were a lot of changes. Konami branched out into casino games, finance, real estate, and music, and they have since gone public on more stock exchanges, specifically the Tokyo Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, Nikkei Stock Average, and the New York Stock Exchange. And Konami currently has locations all over the world, including Hong Kong, Shanghai, Paris, Singapore, and Madrid. And of course, Konami is still cranking out the games. If there's a console in existence, chances are Konami has its hand in that market somehow. And no discussion of Konami is complete without discussion of perhaps one of the most famous pieces of Konami history. And of course, I am talking about the infamous Konami Code. The Konami Code was developed by Kazuhisa Hashimoto, who put the code into the Nintendo Entertainment System port of Gradius, 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 however you pronounce it. I have no idea, but that was in 1986. And of course, Gradius is arguably a spiritual successor to Scramble. In fact, many people consider Scramble to be the first Gradius game. But anyway, Hashimoto put the Konami code in the game because he found that the game itself was too difficult to play. He couldn't really test it reliably. So just for testing purposes, he programmed the game so that when you start your game, if you press the pause button and put in the Konami code, you get all of the power-ups that you could possibly get in that game, even though under normal circumstances, those power-ups would appear gradually as you progress. And the Konami code was meant for testing purposes only, but Hashimoto forgot to remove it, so Gradius on the NES was released with that cheat code intact. And the Konami code became such a major piece of gaming that Konami has intentionally released many games since, that still use that code or something similar to adapt different controllers. And uh, so they use it for Easter eggs now, pretty much. And the Konami code even has a sly use in a scene in the movie Wreck-It Ralph. And for those of you who don't know, which I'm assuming possibly incorrectly is very few of you. 
But Konami Code, the original Konami Code on the NES, you take your D-pad and you go up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, and then you press B, and then you press A. And spoiler alert, I actually tried the Konami code in the Atari 7800 scramble just for laughs and um, didn't notice anything different, to be honest with you. So I'm assuming that, again, possibly incorrectly, that perhaps Bob did not put the Konami code in scramble. But hey, enough about Konami. Let's talk about scramble. All right, come on. If Mission Control thought we could help get the shuttle out of orbit, it can't be that hard. Okay, okay, uh, uh, try this. Hit up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, be a start. Then we'll have unlimited lives. Well, obviously this segment of the podcast is for those of you who either don't know the game or you know the game, but you just want to hear if I make any mistakes. And chances are most of you fit in that latter category. But anywho, Scramble is a side-scrolling shooter, meaning that you move sideways and you shoot things. Duh. Specifically, it is a forced scrolling shooter, meaning that your ship, or in the case of Scramble Jet, is constantly going forward whether you want it to or not. But before I get into the game itself, just a little bit of details behind the history of Scramble. Scramble was developed by Konami and released in Japan by Layjack in February 1981. In North and South America, Stern released it, and uh, the date is a little bit up for dispute. The Wikipedia page lists March 16th, 1981 as a release date, and uh, that reference cites a website called Tokens Only, and that site has scanned images of two pages listing Stern Seberg games and the production numbers. And there are four columns in that, uh, that listing. There's a model column, there's date started, production, and date finished. And there are two separate entries that list something with Scramble in the title. One says Scramble, and then in parentheses it says Video, and the other one says Scramble CT, and then in parentheses it says Video. And I'm guessing the CT means Cocktail Table. The first entry lists March 16th, 1981 as the start date, and the CT entry lists April 27th, 1981. But both scramble listings have an end date of August 4th, 1981. Now, I don't know what those dates mean. They could mean the range of production dates or perhaps distribution dates. But if they were distribution dates, that would disagree with ArcadeHistory.com's assertion that it was released in May 1981. However, most sources agree that it was March 16th or 17th when Stern actually did release Scramble. And uh, given some details that I will get into later in the episode, the May 1981 date seems too late to be accurate. And Scramble is a pioneering game in a couple of ways. It's considered to be the first multi-level shoot-em-up, and it's one of the first, if not the first, um, a video game in which the vehicle you control needs to take fuel into consideration. Well, well, okay, maybe except technically Lunar Lander, but uh, that's kind of a different mechanic altogether. But anyway, what you do is you control a jet that moves from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen, although it only goes a few feet to the right because you're actually constantly scrolling. And you are constantly moving to the right, but you can move your jet in eight different directions. Your goal is to destroy the enemy base of what is called the Scramble system, hence the name Scramble, and uh, when you destroy the base, that's the end of the round. 
But on your way there, you're going to want to shoot everything that you possibly can. The exception, of course, being meteors, because they are indestructible. Shoot all you want, they're not going to go away. And of course, do not touch anything. Anything that your jet touches at all, anywhere, any contact at all, your jet is destroyed. But what you can do is you can shoot with lasers, which fire to the right out of your jet, or you can drop bombs. And on the original arcade game, there are separate buttons for each of those functions. Now remember, this is a multi-level shooter, so there are obviously multiple levels. There are six, technically. In the first level, you dodge and shoot rockets that launch from the ground. And if you destroy a rocket that's on the ground, you get 50 points. If you destroy a rocket that launched, you get 80 points. After the rocket level, you go through a cave and you fire at UFOs, which will hover around in kind of circular-ish patterns, and you earn 100 points for every UFO that you destroy. The next level after that is Meteors. You just dodge the meteors and bomb whatever's on the ground, but you cannot destroy the meteors. Then the fourth level, you have another rocket launching level, and there's a difference between the fourth level and the first level. The first level, you're kind of going through a mountainous terrain, and in the fourth level, you're going through a kind of a city. There are tall buildings you have to guide your jet around, and the rockets are going to be launched from those tall buildings, making things a little bit more challenging than level one. Level five is perhaps the most challenging. You have to maneuver your jet through a series of tunnels and around tall buildings. It is a monster to get through that level because there are so many tight turns, tight corners. The first time you ever play it, chances are you're not going to make it through it. It takes a lot of practice. But if you make it through that fifth level, then you go to the final level in which you need to destroy the enemy base, which is resting on top of a not terribly tall building. If you miss the base, your jet wraps around and gets another chance at destroying it, providing that the jet has enough fuel. But if you destroy the base, you get 800 points and a message saying, congratulations, you completed your duties, good luck next time again. And the game starts over from level one at that point, but it's more difficult. Your jet depletes fuel faster with each round and more rockets will launch with each round. Wait a minute, did I just say fuel depletion? Yeah, that's right. You need to fuel up. In various places through the first five levels, you're going to see fuel tanks on the ground. And how do you refuel? You refuel by destroying a fuel tank. How that's supposed to work, I have no idea. Destroy a fuel tank, you get fuel. I The only thing I could think of is when the fuel tanks explode your jet might be absorbing the fumes and therefore fueling your jet. That's the only thing I can think of. I don't know. But anyway, destroy that fuel tank. You're rewarded with both a little bit of fuel and 150 points. And also other things on the ground. There are mystery targets worth either 100, 200, or 300 points when you destroy them. And that's really all there is to the gameplay. It's fun, it's challenging, and what more can I say? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what more I can say. Think about the logic behind this. You go through the scramble system and you destroy the main base and you get rewarded with arguably a crappier ship because your jet then eats up fuel faster. I mean, who does that, really? But, hey, no good deed goes unpunished, right? But anyway, um, going back to scramble itself... Obviously, it was a hit in arcades. Lots of people loved it. It was enough of a hit 
that there was a sequel called Super Cobra, and I confess I've never played Super Cobra, even though I actually have the Atari 2600 version. Scramble is widely considered a classic, and in my opinion, rightly so. But of course, what would a classic video game be without some kind of legal hassle? Let's examine the legal hassle involved with Scramble. In late 1980, there was a company in Warwick, Rhode Island called Omni Video Games Incorporated. You might not have heard of Omni Video Games, so I'll tell you a little bit about Omni. Omni, well, there's a long convoluted history of Omni and basically just the fact that it's so convoluted. And if you were to kind of make a family tree out of Omni, you wouldn't know where to go. And uh, basically because it was a shady operation and really in short, Omni's business was producing basically cheapo knockoff video games, many of which were pirated copies of existing games. And just to give you an idea of the quality of some of these games, well, there was a game that they had called Space Gorilla, Gorilla being spelled G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A. And there was an advertising flyer singing the praises of Space Gorilla. The advertising flyer spelled it G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, and the marquee on the machine spelled it G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. So attention to detail, I'm telling you. And there was another game that Omni had out called Moon Fighter spelled F-I-G-T-H-E-R. Unless it was supposed to be actually Moon Figther. I don't know. Maybe Figther was uh, the name of a character. Oh, well. In April 1981, Omni had released a game for this system, and they called it Scramble, and it was virtually identical to Konami's Scramble. Remember that date, April 1981, and remember the date that many sources claim the Konami Scramble was released. But anyway, Stern, who was granted the license and the copyright for Scramble for use in the Americas, was naturally ticked off. So as you would expect, they sued Omni for copyright infringement and tried to get an injunction blocking future distribution of the Omni game that bore the name Scramble, and they were granted that injunction. And during that trial that resulted in the injunction, Frank Gaglioni, or is it Gaglioni? I'm not really sure, but... Uh, he was the president of Omni, and he testified during that trial that he actually bought scramble boards from a Taiwanese dealer and was reselling those to distributors for a lot less money than what Stern was charging for the official scramble games. But of course, the judge did grant an injunction against Omni from producing further Scramble games. However, that didn't stop Omni from actually producing a game called Air Shuttle. Air Shuttle played, <laughs> surprisingly, a lot like Scramble and was virtually identical to Scramble, so much to the point that the Attract Mode actually called the game Scramble, despite the marquee saying it was Air Shuttle. So, of course, that didn't sit well with the folks over at Stern and their legal folks. And what happened was Stern got an injunction again against Omni to prevent them from producing Air Shuttle. And even after that injunction, there were still some Air Shuttle video games at the Sands Hotel in Atlantic City. So Stern got permission from the judge to have those video games removed from the Sands. Meanwhile, October 1981, a distributor alerted Stern 
that there were a number of bootleg scramble games in and around Tulsa. And sure enough, they were the Omni Scramble games. The distributor gave some photographic evidence, and Stern got permission from the court to have the games removed. So, George Gerstman, who was a lawyer who was working on Stern's behalf through all these legal hassles, was able to obtain documentation from the court to have those Scramble games from Omni removed from the various locations in Tulsa that had it. So he rented a pickup truck and brought a U.S. Marshal with him to get the games taken away. And uh, interesting, is, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes, is there's a picture of some scramble games being removed from Oral Roberts University. And Stern had also found out from a distributor that there were a handful of scramble games from Omni, the bootleg versions, found in Manhattan, New York City. And um, so once again... George Gerstman gets permission from a judge to have those machines removed. So again, he and a U.S. Marshal head out to New York City, and they go to one of those places that has the illegal scramble machines, and it happened to be in a convenience store in a really bad section of Harlem. So they go into the store, they tell the manager they have to remove the machines, they show the paperwork from the court, and they start to remove the machines, loading them into the pickup trucks. And when they get back into the store to get another one, suddenly eight men with two Dobermans come into the store and lock the door so nobody can get out. And they basically tell Gerstman and the U.S. Marshal that unless they want those Dobermans unleashed, they are to bring those machines back into the store. The U.S. Marshal showed those gentlemen the paperwork from the judge ordering the removal of those games. The eight men with the Doberman said, we don't care what you have or who you are. You are not taking these machines out unless you want these Dobermans to have you for dinner. So the U.S. Marshal said to George Gerstman, uh, what do you want me to do? And George Gerstman says, you know what, just let them have the machines. And Gerstman said that for two reasons. Number one, he kind of liked the idea of being alive. And number two, he figured, well, whoever got these machines in here, it was an innocent mistake. They didn't know they were buying anything illegal. Let's, you know, this isn't going to hurt anybody besides the publicity we got from having the machines removed in Tulsa. That shows people that we take it seriously when people infringe on our copyright. So that should be enough to help our case here. And of course, just to seal the deal on the decision that Gerstman and the Marshal made, as they were leaving the convenience store, after letting bygones be bygones and letting the store keep the bootleg scramble machines, on the way to the pickup truck, Gerstman and the Federal Marshal were pelted by a bunch of rocks thrown off the roof of that convenience store by a bunch of kids. So, Omni appealed and claimed that none of Stern's, well, Konami's really, actual source code was used. They didn't use the source code and they can't claim copyright infringement on the images and sounds because the images and sounds in a video game appear based on how the user plays the game. So it's theoretically different every time, so there's not a single image that you can copyright. There was also something else at issue, and that was Omni's use of the name Scramble. So there was a trademark dispute over that. Stern Electronics Inc. versus Kaufman, and Kaufman being Harold Kaufman of Omni Video Games Incorporated, went to trial in New York on July 15, 1981, in the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, 
and circuit judges John O. Newman and Ellsworth von Greifeiland. I'm gonna. That's the best I'm gonna try to pronounce that name. Uh, and District Judge Edward Dumbald were presiding over the case. Now, as for the copyright issue, Konami didn't actually apply for a copyright for the source code itself, even though they acknowledged that it could probably easily be reverse engineered. However, they were granted a copyright on Scramble as an audiovisual work after they submitted a videotape that showed the gameplay and the attract modes. They submitted that to the U.S. Copyright Office and were granted the copyright. The court maintained that Konami, and of course by extension Stern, could indeed protect that copyright because the player's actions do not diminish the copyright's validity. And the court pointed out that there are many aspects of the game, such as the appearance of fuel tanks, meteors, UFOs, buildings, the ground, all that stuff. They're going to appear regardless of what the player does. And the background noise is going to be there regardless of what the player does. And therefore, the copyrights protections were kind of strengthened by that logic. Now, let's look at the other thing in dispute during this trial, the trademark on the name Scramble. Omni had claimed that they had used the name Scramble before Stern released Scramble. Omni argued that technically neither they nor Stern had the trademark on the game name Scramble at the time that Scramble was released, so the trademark argument didn't really hold water. Omni tried to further strengthen its claim by demonstrating that there were arcade marquees from Omni dating back to December of 1980 that bore the name Scramble. Well, despite all that, the court disagreed and said that it was very likely that Omni knew that Stern was coming up with a game called Scramble in the near future. So basically, the court accused Omni of jumping on that name so they could claim first use in case there was a trademark battle that ever happened. And perhaps lending credence to the court's observation was that Omni could only produce five instances of the arcade marquee saying Scramble prior to Stern's March 1981 release, and it probably didn't help Omni's case that it turned out that those five games that had the Scramble marquees on them weren't actually Scramble. But hey, Frank Gaglione tried to cover that up by saying, well, you know what, we tended to put those Scramble boards over all of our games. So you might put a quarter in a Scramble machine, but it actually plays Rally X. And of course, the judge did not care to buy that testimony. So basically, the court felt that Omni was grasping at straws and was using, in the court's words, a bad faith attempt to reserve a mark. So on January 20th, 1982, the circuit court upheld the original injunction saying, yes, Stern could indeed defend the copyright on its game and that Stern also legally at that point owned the trademark on the game name Scramble. I wasn't able to find much information about Omni or Harold Kaufman, although apparently while Stern versus Kaufman was in progress, Omni was also sued by Midway over infringement over Pac-Man, Galaxian, and Rally X. And of course, I will look further into that Pac-Man dispute for when I discuss Pac-Man collection in a much later episode. If I'm going to be successful in that, well, time will only tell. George Gerstmann actually wrote a book called Clear and Convincing Evidence, My Career in Intellectual Property Law. And I'll put a link to that book in the show notes, by the way. In that book, he goes into great detail about the whole Omni Video Games fiasco. Now, 
let's talk about the story of how Scramble came to be on the Atari 7800. It was New Year's Day 2012 when Bob DiCrescenzo posted the first work-in-progress version of Scramble to the Atari Age message boards. He said he was hoping to be much farther along than where he actually was, but he got stuck on a couple of things. For one thing, he still had to implement shooting and bombing, and of course the results of said shooting and bombing. He still had to make rockets launch, he still had to add UFOs and meteors, and he still had to add sound. So of course this was a very preliminary version. One thing that he was stuck on was he wasn't sure how the arcade difficulty ramps up, and whether or not he should assign lasers and bombs to separate fire buttons, or perhaps allow for single button controllers to fire both lasers and bombs concurrently. And after getting the usual flood of draw-jopping responses from users and listening to what they had to say, Bob decided to make two-button versus one-button selectable via the difficulty switches. The next day, Bob posted a work-in-progress, an updated one, with the ability to shoot and drop bombs, and there were some other changes made based on some user feedback. At this point, there wasn't any end-of-round logic, so once you destroyed the base, you'd just repeat the base level ad infinitum. Or as some people say, ad infinitum. And those people obviously never took a Latin class. But anyway, on January 4th, 2012, there was another updated ROM from Bob. And due to the paucity of system resources available, Bob found that he was going to have to put some flicker on the enemies, or at least some of the enemies. But on the bright side, the new ROM that he posted now had sound, launching rockets, and the ability to end around. There was one user who asked if the Scramble logo, I think it was Vector Gamer, I think he's the one who asked if the Scramble logo on the startup screen could match the style of the logo that's on the arcade marquee. So that way you get more of a feeling of, wow, I can actually play the arcade Scramble at home now. Bob said, well, let me see if I have enough resources when I finish the main portion of the game. Two days later, January 6th, Bob posted a ROM of the complete game with the disclaimer that even though the background sound is programmed into the ROM, for some reason it would not be audible if you use the emulator called Pro System, but on a real 7800 you could hear it fine. He also said he didn't like how the opening music sounded, that he might end up redoing it. So the next day, Bob posted yet another ROM, and this time it had an attract mode added in. And in that same post, Bob listed some memory locations in case people wanted to hack the ROM. Later that day, he posted, wait for it, another updated ROM. And that version of the ROM fixed an issue if you use some kind of a high score device. There was some kind of problem saving the score. There was a problem in which sometimes your shots would go right through an enemy while well, that bug was fixed, and there was also an adjustment in difficulty. And not even two hours later, there was yet a third ROM of the day posted in which there were color effects added for when you lose a jet. Bob realized he forgot to include that earlier. Somewhere around this time is when Bob implemented three difficulty levels. There was easy, and then there were two others based on how it was observed, how Stern's version of Scramble was harder than Konami's. So Bob designated the normal difficulty level to be Konami, with the harder difficulty listed as Stern. 
And eventually, Bob relabeled those difficulty designations to read easy, normal, and hard just to avoid confusion. And that's how it ended up in the released game. If you chose normal difficulty, the word Konami appears on the menu. And if you choose hard difficulty, the word Stern appears on the menu. Late the next morning, Bob posted another updated ROM with some minor tweaks based on user suggestions on Atari Age, of course. And just a bit over half an hour later, in response to an observation about how the jet explodes, Bob posted yet another updated ROM to make it more accurately reflect what happens in the arcade version. Are you keeping track of all these ROMs Bob releases for just one game? (laughs) But anyway, later on... He posted a picture of an actual scramble cartridge with custom labels. And of course, it was beautiful. And those of you who have it, you know what I'm talking about. On January 9th, Bob posted a PDF version of the manual. And shortly afterwards, he posted a new version of the ROM that adjusts how the jet moves in response to the joystick. He kind of made things a little bit more accurate. And before he went to bed that night, he posted another ROM this time making the stern option accurately reflect the layout of how the arcade game looks on the stern version after he noticed that the layout on the stern version was much less organized than that of the Konami version. So Bob gets up the next morning and he releases a revision of the ROM that corrects an issue with how the rockets launch on level four. And he noticed that under certain circumstances, the jet would not be destroyed if it made contact with something on the underside of its nose. So later in the evening, he posted a revised ROM that hopefully would correct that anomaly. January 11th, Mark Oberhäuser posted a picture of his box design, and no surprise, the design was absolutely stunning. You can get Mark's box through his website. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. And as I said on previous episodes, if you are in the United States, you cannot order the box from the web form. You have to send him an email. On January 14th, Bob said he had a DL issue, and I have no idea what that means, but he found that issue when he tested the game on a 7800 console. But anyway, he posted a ROM to fix that problem. Four days later, the 18th of January, Bob posted a cartridge wait list that eventually filled with 65 names. The asking price was $25 per cart, $2 shipping within the United States, $4 shipping outside the United States. And February 18th, 2012, there were wait list copies that had already been shipped and received. Unfortunately, however, there was an issue found with the headers on the ROM files causing some problems with the mess emulator, so Bob posted a fixed version of those ROM files. I don't think that would have affected the cartridges at all, considering the headers were mainly for emulators. I could be wrong, though. But that was a pretty quick timeline from January 1st through February 18th, and there were cartridges already shipped. And what's interesting is when I was looking through that old Atari Age thread, I noticed that my name was nowhere on any waiting list, Yet, I posted a message saying that I received mine on February 18th, 2012, and I remember that day because I had visited a place called No Limit Arcade in Algonquin after I heard about them on WGN Morning News in Chicago, and when I came home, it was waiting for me, so that's how I remember that date, but oh well, I got my copy regardless of where my name came up. But anyway, by the time the game was finally released on cartridges, 
there were a couple of changes that Bob had implemented at various points over the development time. For one thing, the word Konami at one point during the development would appear on the building in the base level, regardless of what difficulty level you selected. But on the released version of the game, it only appears if you choose normal difficulty. Also, the game will auto-detect if you have a pain-line compatible two-button controller versus a single-button controller and will adjust the firing mechanism as appropriate. And of course, Scramble is available for sale in the Atari Age store. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it is one of the top-selling Atari 7800 homebrew titles. And of course, I like to talk about high scores on these games that I talk about. Now, I didn't talk about that for Crazy Bricks in the previous episode, and the reason is that there really aren't many scores out there to really examine. I did see a couple on YouTube, but they seemed awfully low, so I'm not sure what's up with that. However, that's not the case with Scramble. With normal difficulty, it looks like Jin on Atari Age has the highest score, with 120,680, um, effective December 2nd, 2016, as part of Atari Age's High Score Club. And over on YouTube, it looks like Oyama Family, a.k.a. Wilson Oyama, has a video showing him getting 52,090 points on the hard setting and something that I noticed about uh, about Wilson's scores here is that his normal high score is 115,040, which is higher than the score he got on the easy variation, which is 94,320. That's uh, that's fascinating how that works out sometimes. <laughs> As I usually do, I went to Atari Age and asked for some feedback about Scramble for the 7800. See, Toilet Tunes says, looking at games like Scramble and Astro Blaster will give you a good feel for what arcades were like in the early years. While not my kind of game, I greatly appreciate that obscure titles are made for the 7800, especially the attention to detail, making games as faithful as possible. It's hard to believe the Tia can sound so good compared to commercial releases like Donkey Kong Jr., a very colorful, visually appealing port. And thank you, Toilet Tunes. Thank you for that. That is something that I noticed. A lot of the games that Bob did for the 7800, and hopefully will continue to do for the 7800, a lot of them are kind of obscure, like Ripoff, for one thing. I never heard of Ripoff until Bob's homebrew of that came out. And actually, Galloping Ghost Arcade, which is uh, not far from me, they recently acquired a ripoff, and I played that for a little while, and I'll be happy to talk about that experience in a later episode. And uh, yeah, Astro Blaster, I, I wasn't familiar with that one. It was it was nuts. Armor, he did Armor Attack, and that, that was a new one for, well, not new, but that was one that I don't remember from back then. And then when I actually see the real thing, it's like, wow, these are actually fun games. But yeah, I love what Bob did with Scramble, though. It does look nice and colorful. It's virtually identical to the arcade game as, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And if we move on, we have some comments from Trevor. And he says, long before Gradius, there's the granddaddy of them all, Scramble. Or should I say Gradius, or Gradius, or Janofsky. But anyway, um, he says, uh, no power-up, no upgrades. Just a jet rocket dropping bombs and blasting forward. 
This game requires pure navigation skill and, at times, little to no error in movement. Being it no different from many of Bob's creations, this is a fantastic port of the arcade original. If you love Scramble in the arcades, you'll likely love it on the 7800. If you hate it in the arcades, especially if you played the Stern version, well, you might not hate it under the Pro system, and here is why. Difficulty selection. If your struggle in the arcade was to maintain fuel and worrying too much about running out, there is now an easy setting. Coupled with the default norm and hard options, coupled with the default norm and hard options allows relative variety in the game's configuration. Easy, for example, means no rockets launch at your ship, and fuel depletes at a slower pace. Normal is the default setting mimicking the Konami version's challenge, with a normal fuel burn rate and two rockets launching at once. Pining for the ultimate scramble challenge, there is hard. It ups the number of rockets from the norm setting of two simultaneously launching to four. Additionally, fuel burns off at a very fast rate. Like the arcade original, Scramble is not winning any awards for multicolored sprites. Nonetheless, the 320 resolution is utilized for graphics, so they are sharp, detailed, and pop nicely against the black of space. Sound also follows suit with good matching arcade sound effects that come across more than adequately on the 7800, despite the TIA. All five stages are present. 1. Rockets launch ground. 2. UFO caverns. 3. Meteors. 4. Rockets launch buildings. And 5. Buildings maze. It can become a tad bit frustrating to make it up to the building's maze only to get crushed shortly thereafter. Unfortunately, the difficulty adjustments for the game itself do not change the maze structuring. Practice makes perfect, and it may feel like you have to be just that, perfect, to get through the maze. As even making it past the narrow navigation presented, a bomb must be carefully dropped with a timed release just so in order not to overshoot or undershoot the target wedged between the buildings. Nerve-ending and mind-racking? Maybe, but deadly accurate to the arcade's difficulty. It is an excellent port of what this reviewer considers a good arcade game. The sequel, Super Cobra, saw porting across a plethora of platforms and is often perceived as the harder of the two. For Scramble, it was under the Vectrex-only BITD, and recently released for the 2600. Scramble is a significant piece of gaming history, being the forerunner of the aforementioned Gradius, as well as R-Types games that followed. A very welcomed addition to the 7800 library. It is worth the investment to play, and adds a horizontal scrolling shooter with a flair for challenging and testing even the most skilled player's limits. Thank you, Trevor. Trevor always has some great insights into these games. Thanks so much, Trevor. And, oh man, yeah, I mentioned it's really something that Scramble didn't really seem to get many points. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is uh, the Vectrex. And I actually had that during the time I had a Vectrex. I had the, I had Scramble, and I didn't know it was an arcade game. That's how uncommon it was. And, I, man, that maze of buildings, I totally know what you're talking about, Trevor. I remember struggling through that thing. In fact, my older brother had the same exact problem. We just could not get through that maze. We both referred to it as the impossible part. And I remember one morning, I 
sat down, I played, and I actually made it through the impossible part on the Vectrex. And I told my brother about it. I was like, dude, I made it past the impossible part. He said, you know what? I did too. I just did that last night. I don't remember how I did it, but I did it. But we were both proud of ourselves for making it through that. But yeah, that's it's crazy. It's, it, this was obviously a popular game, especially given how the whole Omni video game situation, if it weren't a good game, certainly it wouldn't have been pirated. So why did it not get the attention that Super Cobra got? Oh, well, the world may never know. And, folks, that is Scramble for the Atari 7800. And my overall thoughts on Scramble, I mean, hey, what is there not to love? It's great. It's very faithful to the arcade original. And just plain fun. You can't ask for more. Highly recommend it myself. I do don't recall if I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but it was part of the 30th anniversary Bob DiCrescenzo multi-cart. And by the way, that means 30th anniversary of the Atari 7800, not the 30th anniversary of Bob DiCrescenzo doing these games. He has not been doing them for 30 years or else we would have a much better library for the 7800 than what we actually had. But having said that, I just want to thank some people here, specifically those who sponsor this show through Patreon.com. Thank you to Ed Laden Controllers, Richard Valdez, Jimmy G, and our newest sponsor, Gray Defender. Or is it G-Ray Defender? I don't know. I'm, I, The way it's spelled out, it might be G-Ray, it might be Gray. But hey, I deeply appreciate it, all of you. Thank you all so much. And if you wish to contribute to this podcast monetarily, help things keep going, help keep costs down, and uh, maybe help me buy some more homebrews so I can talk about them, <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And should you like to contact me directly, you can email me at homebrew78 at fab4, that's the number four, by the way, it.com. Show notes page is located at homebrew78.fab4it.com. Twitter handle is homebrew78. And the YouTube channel, which I don't think has anything new in it right now, is Homebrew7800. Yay, because I'm so good at setting stuff up consistently. So thank you for listening, everybody. I do appreciate it big time. And let's see, next episode is going to be talking about Donkey Kong PK. And it might be a short episode, just giving you that forewarning. Nonetheless, I hope you enjoy it, and the next episode after that, I do believe we will talk about Asteroids Deluxe. Asteroids Deluxe. But thank you again for listening, everybody, and remember, please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. <laughs>